Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning. My name is Jarrell. I serve as the student pastor here uh, within your community, and I love you guys. You guys look great, at least the top half of your faces. It's pretty cool. Hey, we're going to jump into the book of Jonah this morning, and I invite you to follow me um, into this familiar story uh, in some unfamiliar ways. As you might know, we're, we're preaching through some Old Testament uh, stories, some kind of classic Bible stories this summer that you've heard growing up in Sunday school or maybe are just familiar Uh, in Christian pop culture, and we're taking a deeper uh, look at them and finding the whole gospel of Jesus uh, in the whole Bible. And so we're going to jump in to every kid's favorite Bible story, Jonah and the whale. Our story today begins with a man named Jonah. His name means dove, son of faithfulness. Jonah is a prophet, which means that he serves as the mouthpiece of God. He's a messenger. He brings God's word to people. Usually, prophets don't have the happiest of messages. They give stern warnings. They call people to repent from a way of life that's causing destruction and turn toward a way of life that creates flourishing. So Jonah receives a message from God. Um, As usual, I mean, not as usual, it's not for the nation of Israel. It's for the capital of the largest and most powerful empire of the day. On this particular day, Jonah's message from God is simple. Go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. This message is for the capital of the Assyrian Empire, a call to turn from their ruthless war tactics their unspeakable treatment of human beings, and their brutal and violent plundering for the advancement of riches and the advancement of their empire. But unlike so many of the prophets that came before him and would come after him, Jonah decided to not do that. He passes on the invitation. He clicks, will not attend. And rather than heading northeast to Nineveh, he turns from God's invitation and flees from God in the other direction. He's made up his mind to head for a city called Tarshish. It's it's on the far west coast of Spain, and it also happens to be the very edge of the known world. For some reason, when God invites Jonah into his movement in the world, Jonah turns the other direction, far in the other direction. And he's not just moving, he's running. And he's not running from the brutality of the Assyrians, he's running from God. And that's all we know at this point. Jonah, with no words of rebuttal or explanation, simply flees from God. To do this, Jonah goes down to the port town of Joppa. He drops a few coins to the captain of a ragtag group of sailors, hops on a boat, and pulls out his iPad to numb his mind on another season 
parks and recreation. They set out, and as they sail across the Mediterranean Sea, a great wind and violent storm rises up. Recognizing the intensity of the storm, the polytheistic sailors call out to their gods. At the same time, Jonah goes below deck, lays down, and falls asleep. At this point, the captain of the ship confronts Jonah. What god do you worship? What have you done? Jonah explains that he, ironically, worships the God who made the sea and the dry land. And he's running from him. As the great storm gets rougher and rougher, the sailors try rowing harder. They throw cargo overboard, but nothing helps. So after threatening to take his iPad and remove privileges, they confront Jonah one last time. What should we do to make the sea calm down before us? Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. What's going on here? Jonah had the opportunity to join God on his movement in the world, but he turned the other way. And as we've seen, this leads Jonah to a series of self-destructive decisions. So bad that he's now ready to die. We find Jonah in a frightening headspace. He was not pleased with God's invitation and he attempts to run away from it. God calls and he turns away from God. We see Jonah's journey of a literal and metaphorical descent. He goes down to Joppa, down to the boat, down below. He lays down and he falls into a deep sleep. The circumstances, some outside of his control, and his choices entirely within his control have led Jonah into this symbolic moment. He's caught in himself. He's trying to numb the pain. He's trying to deal with the mess of his decisions and the storm that it's caused for him and the storm that it's caused for everyone else. Tarshish isn't just the edge of the world. It's an escape from reality. Antioch, do you know what it feels like to feel feels like to be asleep below deck on your way to Tarshish while your boat nearly cracks under the pressure from the storm? A series of events has led you there. It may be a bunch of stuff outside of your control. It may be entirely the result of your own decisions. But when we find ourselves in the bottom of the ship, we know that our hearts can turn inward. They harden, and we look for ways to escape reality. And our world is saturated with them. There's a Jonah in all of us. And rather than turn back to God, Jonah doubles down in his stubborn numbness. He grows so tangled in his rebellion that the only option left for Jonah is to be thrown into the sea, permanently leaving his reality. The crew of sailors reluctantly agrees and hucks Jonah over the edge. Crash. As Jonah disappears into the dark water, the winds sputter out, the waves relent, and the sea grows calm. As the ice-cold water 
jolts Jonah awake from his emotional and spiritual slumber, God sends a great fish to swallow him up. Jonah dies. The end. No! (laughs) By the mercy of God, despite every effort to run away, despite how deep his depression and acute his apathy, despite how ruthless his rebellion, God joins Jonah, the unfaithful, grumpy, hypocritical prophet in the depths of the sea, in the cold, dark sea, and meets him exactly where he is with abundant grace, overwhelming mercy, and saves him. God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. At this point in the G-rated children's story, Jonah is not wondering what ancient species of Mediterranean fish is large enough to swallow a human. He's not curious how he might possibly breathe in the belly of the whale. And he's not singing bad food, lousy atmosphere with the newsboys and Larry the Cucumber. Jonah knows exactly what is happening. And here it is. Within the story of Israel, we see a pattern develop. Israel falls into rebellious living. A prophet then warns them that if they don't turn from their ways, they'll encounter destruction. And sometimes they do. The experience of suffering the consequences of your own rebellion are described all throughout the narrative of God, but most poetically by a few of Israel's other prophets. Hosea calls this being swallowed up. He says this, Israel has broken my covenant and rebelled against my instruction. They cry out to me, our God, we acknowledge you, but they have rejected what is good. So an enemy will pursue them. They will set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. And so Israel is swallowed up. The imagery is that if you don't turn, your experience is like being swallowed up. David in Psalm 124 puts it this way. If the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger flared against us, the flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept over us. Are you catching anything here? Jeremiah describes it like this. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has devoured us. He has thrown us into confusion. He has made us an empty jar. Like a serpent, he has swallowed us and filled his stomach with our delicacies and then has spewed us out. And this is what it was like for Jonah. Jonah's hard heart has led him to a point of being swallowed by the sea. This is what it was like for Jonah. And in this state, we we finally see Jonah's heart turn toward God as he cries out in prayer. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. The engulfing waters threatened me, and the deep surrounded me. 
seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say my salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The God, who, the God of the seas and the dry land. God looks at Jonah and with compassion says, you belong with me, not swallowed in the sea. Antioch, when our circumstances or decisions have led us into the deep, into the realm of the dead, when our support systems and coping mechanisms and security items have shattered, when we are at rock bottom, there we find a pliability to our desperation. When we are at rock bottom, we may finally be willing to let go of our white knuckled grip on control or pride or the ethos that brought us here. And I wonder how many of us here today are asleep in the boat or being swallowed in the sea. And the invitation of our compassionate God today is speaking directly to you. Now is the time to invite Jesus into your rock bottom. Now is the time to turn from the ways of destruction and humbly allow God to bring your life up from the pit. So Jonah sets out to Nineveh and we wonder for a brief moment if Jonah really believed his prayer now that he's not drowning. He walks into the great city of Nineveh and proceeds to preach the shortest and most ambiguous sermon in the history of humankind. Five Hebrew words that say this, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah's first step of obedience arrives with cynicism and sabotage. It's almost like he doesn't want the Ninevites to get the message. It's the worst sermon ever recorded. It's pathetic. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And with those five words, the capital of the most gruesome, inhumane, and violent empire in the entire world believes in God and turns from their wickedness. What? They show the physical signs of repentance, put on burlap for clothes, sit down in the dust. Jonah's message spreads uh, to the king of the empire. And when it reaches him, he puts out a decree to the entire city. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? Maybe God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Unlike Jonah, who turned away from God's invitation, 
The Ninevites turn toward God's invitation, hoping that God may then turn from his anger. Do you notice any themes? You know what happens? When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. This is typically where uh, your kids' books stop. As you know, some of you know I have a 15-month-old son almost. His name's Logan. Someone gave us a book of uh, Bible stories and little kids' books. The art's really well done, although every uh, Bible character looks like they're from Portland. Um, And the Jonah story stops here. Uh, I read it to my son, and my wife knows sometimes I add some extra theology in there. It's a little bit above his age. Um, But the Jonah story does not stop with Nineveh repenting and Jonah doing heel clicks into the sunset. Um, We're not even sure if he knew how to do heel clicks. And in chapter 4, verse 1, we find the most important line of the book of Jonah. Jonah 4.1, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. We've had a lot of surprises so far in this story. We have pagan sailors repenting. We have a fish swallowing a human and then spitting him out on dry land. We have a ruthlessly evil empire turning from their wicked ways. But could this statement be the most surprising? But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He goes on, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew this. I knew it. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God. I knew that you're slow to anger. I know that you're abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. This is the second time that Jonah's invited his life to be swallowed by the pit. God's circle of compassion is too big for Jonah. Jonah's true condition is revealed. The reason he ran away from God was not because the journey was inconvenient. It wasn't because he feared the king of the Assyrian empire would impale him with a stake like the rest of his enemies. Jonah ran away from God because he couldn't stomach the idea that God might forgive Nineveh. In other words, Jonah fled a compassionate God because according to Jonah's view of the world, his enemies didn't deserve this same compassionate God. Do you know what they've done, God? Do you know how evil these people are? Do you know the destruction and the pain they've caused? Do you know that even if they repent for a moment, they'll probably turn back to their evil ways? You couldn't possibly forgive these people. You couldn't possibly have room in your circle of compassion for them. 
God's compassion is too wide for Jonah. And our hypocritical prophet is far too familiar with the story of his God and his people. In Exodus 34, 6, Yahweh, the God of Israel, introduces a phrase to describe himself to Moses. It's a mantra that would, be, that would come to saturate the narrative of Israel. The fact that the God of Israel is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love is like the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. It shows up dozens of times throughout God's narrative of redemption. It's used over and over again. If you're wondering what God is like, this is it. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with steadfast love. And if you're wondering what Jonah thinks about that when applied to his enemies, you just need to look at chapter four, verse one. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Jonah wanted to define good and evil on his own terms. And he joins Adam and Eve, and he joins you and me, and he chooses to define good and evil, compassion and justice, the way that he wants to. He hears God's plan for human flourishing and decides that he knows better. He wants to decide for himself how compassion and justice are dispensed into the world. He wants, to, he wants to decide the right way to live and declare who stands inside and who stands outside God's sphere of compassion. And this leads Jonah, like us, down a path with only one option, down to Joppa, down below the deck of the ship, and swallowed in the sea. So at this point, God continues to pursue Jonah and questions his logic. Somewhat humorously, he still remains compassionate to Jonah. And he asks him a question. Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Antioch, you know what the first thing God says to Adam and Eve after they choose to define good and evil for themselves? He asks them a question. Where are you? Adam and Eve. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? God invites our self-reflection when we choose to be Lord of our own lives. How is that working for you? And rather than take this moment, his like 20th chance to turn from his wicked ways, Jonah again says nothing back to God, but runs off to the hills east of the city, builds a poorly constructed lean-to, and silently sulks, hoping that maybe God would still destroy this city. God continues to invite Jonah into his compassion. And by now, we shouldn't be surprised that God, like he did on the ship to Tarshish, like he did while Jonah was being swallowed in the sea, pursues his hypocritical prophet, even through Jonah's never-ending attempts to flee from this God. And so God offers Jonah a real-life parable of sorts. As Jonah's waiting to see if Nineveh is destroyed, he begins 
baking in the scorching heat. God sends a leafy plant to grow next to him and provide shade. It looked just like a green Antioch umbrella. Nice. And Jonah is stoked. He's got shade, he's got his iPad, and he's just waiting for Nineveh to be destroyed. And then overnight, the next night, God sends a worm to chew up the plant. And so by the next morning, it's gone. And as the sun rises, Jonah begins to be burnt to a crisp again. And he dramatically exclaims for the third time, it would be better for me to die than to live. Jonah's a really miserable fellow. We should write a kid's story about him. And God asked Jonah another question. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now Jonah has the energy to answer. He says, well, yeah, it absolutely is. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. This is the fourth time that Jonah invites death as he kind of spirals out of control. And God responds like this. You have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And that's the end of the book of Jonah. A question about animals. Great. In this book, we find a God with compassion so great that even the polytheistic sailors repent and worship him. We find a God with a steadfast love so strong that a ruthlessly evil empire repents and pleads for mercy. And in it, we find a lost prophet, a man named Jonah, who knows the story of his people and knows the character of his God. And he's the only person in the story who ought to encounter God's faithfulness. His name, after all, means son of faithfulness. And this man does not. Jonah struggles to commune with a God who would show compassion to his enemies. And therefore, Jonah struggles to commune with a God who would show compassion to him. Jonah, the one character that you think would meet God, is the only character in the story who doesn't. Antioch, could it be that our inability to show compassion to our enemies prevents us from experiencing the compassion of God? So I have two questions for us today. The first, who have you placed outside your circle of compassion? Might be a family member, a neighbor, a type of person in the city or the world. The paradigm of God's grace and justice is a challenge to Jonah's paradigm of grace and justice. According to Jonah, the Ninevites have gone too far. They have exhausted the compassion of God. 
God should not be slow to anger. He, like Jonah, should be very angry. Jonah shouldn't need a leafy plant to understand this. He can look at his own life. God invited Jonah into his story of redemption and God pursued Jonah as he took step after step of rebellion. Even Jonah's suicidal plunge into the sea was no match for the severe mercy of God. Jonah, can't you see that I also have concern for you? Along with the sailors, along with the Ninevites, can you accept that I would love your enemies? Could Jesus have really meant it when he asked us to pray, forgive us our sins as we also forgive those who sin against us? And then directly after that, say this, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Jesus recognized this dynamic as he interacted with the grumpy and hypocritical religious leaders of his day. Those who, like Jonah, wanted to decide for God who stands inside and who stands outside of God's grace. Skeptical, the religious leaders asked Jesus for a sign to prove that he was the Messiah. And you know what he said? The only sign I give to you is the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Ooh. Friends, is there someone in your life right now that you're unwilling to extend compassion and forgiveness to? Where and who are your enemies? In the home, at work, in your neighborhood, or on the other side of the debate? My second question is this. Not who else have you placed outside of God's circle of compassion, but have you placed yourself outside of God's circle of compassion? Where do you find yourself in Jonah's story? Are you at a point of being swallowed in the sea? Are you overcome with guilt and shame that the only thing you have to do is numb out go down to the cargo uh, space in the bottom of the ship and just check out from reality? Is Tarshish working for you? Jonah's journey is no different than the sailors or the Ninevites or you and me. Where it fell apart for Jonah is that he refused to break. He refused to humble himself and allow God's compassion to reach his hardened heart. I have to be honest with you guys, as I was reading and studying the book of Jonah this week, um, man, I felt so, conviction, uh, so convicted and identified so intensely with, I think, the emotional spiral of Jonah. And, you know, there's probably parts of my heart where I do have enemies that I'm unwilling to forgive. And if you feel like you're one of them, please come talk to me. But honestly, between you all and me, 
um, the hardest thing for me to do often is to view myself as being included in the compassion of God. I am actually my own enemy that I'm excluding from God's grace. And so what does Jesus do with us? He unites himself to the Jonah in all of us. He descends down into the sea with us and we are swallowed up together in death. Only when we die to ourselves, to our definition of good and evil, when we hit rock bottom at a spiritual and emotional level and we repent and invite this Jesus into our lives, will we find true life. And today we're going to be heading down to the river to baptize people. And how fitting is this imagery of being swallowed in the sea and dying to your old, sight, old self and then rising up with the grace and the new life of Jesus so that you are now capable to join him on his mission in the world. Antioch, could God have something to say to you in this story today? May you not struggle to commune with a compassionate God, but may you invite that compassion and steadfast love and mercy into your life, into the life of your community today.